out of town this week. They got to go uh, do a wedding in California for Marilyn Van Beek. I actually don't know what her new name is, uh, but Marilyn, what is it? Something. Marilyn something. Today, he's, but I think they're grateful for a, a little bit of time away. If you are a guest with us this morning, I want to say welcome. Um, you, you get the B team today, not the A team. He's gone, so uh, you get to deal with, with me, but um, I'm glad you're here. We have been walking through the book of 1 Corinthians, and so that's where we're going to be. If you grab your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is where, where we're headed. Uh, in this passage, I think Jeremy was super kind and gave me one that was just real Real obvious, if you look at the title of chapter 8, it talks about food offered to idols. And clearly, I know that when, uh, when you went to the meat market at United this week, you were concerned about the meat that was back there had it been offered to an idol. Uh, no, at, at, at first glance, you kind of look at this passage and you go, what in the world? What are we going to do with this? Well, I actually think that this passage has some sneaky application for us. And there's some things in here that are, I think, going to challenge us. So have you ever been in a situation in which you have an opportunity to do something, but you don't know if you should? So for example, have you ever been over to a person's house, maybe they're a believer or an unbeliever, and they offer you a drink of alcohol? Do you partake or do you abstain? What do you do? Do you risk offending them and pass or do you participate knowing that even though there's no way that you'd go so far as getting drunk, which the scriptures prohibit, but you know that this might prohibit how you could communicate with this person. There's times in life when we step into these so-called gray areas in which the scriptures don't give us an explicit command to either do or don't do. They're neither moral or immoral, right? They, they kind of fall into that middle ground. So, so teenagers, you are getting closer to that time in life in which you get to go to college. And once you get to college, you don't have a 10 o'clock curfew anymore. You get to be in charge of your own life, which is wonderful and dangerous. So young people, you move to the town of Dalhart where you can't find a house because housing in this community is absurd. So what do you do? Do you move in with a friend? Well, maybe it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Is it okay to move in and live with someone? Now, we're, we're not having sex because sex outside of marriage, adultery, is prohibited in the scriptures. But is it okay to live together? We can save money, right? It seems to be prudent and wise. It's okay to live together in the same house? What about this one? I have friends in this church who were, who've been saved. They used to go, were raised in a Catholic church. Their families are still Catholic. Is it okay to participate in communion at a Catholic church? Because their understanding of communion is vastly different than ours. Now, this may be a little bit more personal, but what about skipping church? Hebrews tells us, don't forsake the meeting together, as some so often do. But what does that mean, right? Is it okay to go up to the mountains and Enjoy a weekend or two weekends or three weekends away. What's the regular meeting together? Well, we'll watch, we can watch church online now, and I got my family with me. So, so how often should we meet together? And, and is my family, is that sufficient? Or, or maybe it's I love to go hunting on Sundays. You know, pheasant season's coming up. Pastor Jeremy, he's not hunting today. He's, we, we know that he loves to hunt. But how do, how do we measure this gray area 
in which there's not some specific commands on what to do. Well, there's two groups of people in this room. There's the group in this room that tends toward legalism. And they say, no, you must be at church every Sunday. And no, you must never drink alcohol. And no, you must never stay past curfew. And then there's the group in the room who's like, man, Jesus died to set me free from that. I can do what I want to do. I'm free to enjoy the freedoms that God has given us that he saved us for. I've got some good news. And the good news is you're both wrong. And God in his kindness has brought us together today to study 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And I think what 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is going to do is it's going to give us a framework. It's going to give us a framework through which to think through some of these questions. And ultimately, I think what it's going to show is that if if we're asking the question, can I do this, whatever this is, can I do this, you're asking the wrong question. That's not even the right starting point. So here's my main point this morning. The main point of our sermon is this. It's that the gospel transforms how we exercise our personal freedoms. The gospel is going to transform how we exercise these freedoms that God has given us. Now, I'm going to walk through this a little bit differently. Usually, we'll read the whole passage, and then we'll go through it. But I'm not going to do that. Today, I'm going to read a part, and then we're going to explain it and study it, and then we'll read the next part, and then get to the end, okay? So, if you'll pick up me, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. I'm going to read the first three verses. This is what the Apostle Paul says. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now by way of reminder... The book of 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. And apparently, they had written Paul and said, Paul, we got some things going on here we need some help with. And we we need you to enlighten us. So Paul responds, and that's what the book of 1 Corinthians is, right? And so, so, so far up to this point, at 1 Corinthians, we've studied theology. We've talked about who God is. And then Paul started to walk into some more of the practical things like marriage and sex and singleness and divorce and remarriage, and, and what else have we talked about? Sexual immorality, we've talked about, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Lawsuits, how do we handle lawsuits? So, so Paul has addressed all these things, but now in chapter 8, he's beginning to launch into something different, a different topic. Now concerning food offered to idols, and this is actually going to take over about three chapters is what he's going to talk about this, but we're only going to study chapter 8 today. And as soon as he says, now concerning food, offered to idols, he all of a sudden seems to take a hard right turn and talks about something totally different. What does he say? We know that, and he quotes their letter back to him, all of us possess knowledge. Paul, listen, we all know something, all right? We all know the truth. We all know what happens to be real about these idols. But Paul takes their very words and he turns them back on them. And he says, all of us possess knowledge, But this knowledge that you think you have, it puffs up. You're just using what you think you know to to satisfy your own wants and desires. It's just to serve yourself. It has nothing to do with which the community in which God saved you. Moreover, 
Not only do you, not only using this knowledge that you think you have to build yourself up, but you don't actually know what you think you know. The problem that the Corinthians had actually had nothing to do with eating this food that had been sacrificed to idols. The problem that the Corinthians had was their hearts. Their hearts were bent inward. It was, on, it was about them serving themselves. And look, I'm sure that they had some strong arguments, okay? So this whole food sacrifice to idols to us is a very like foreign concept. We don't, we don't track with that. It's, it's not for us, right? Historically, what's going on in this moment? Well, in Corinth, which would have been a, a pagan city, there would have been, the main part of the city would have been a market. And in that market, you would have a chance to buy your food and particularly your meat. Now, in that day, the pagans, what they would do with their meat is they would offer it as a sacrifice to an idol. And then that, or they would offer it to the priest who would sacrifice it. So the priest would offer it as a sacrifice, but there was so much meat that they couldn't consume it all, so the priest would then turn and sell it in the market for a discounted price. So the church at Corinth would say, I don't think an idol's anything, but I'm just going to go ahead and buy that meat because I can get it cheaper. It makes sense, right? Or festivities like weddings, parties, some of those would take place in these pagan idols, in these uh, temples. And so what do they do? If I got invited to somebody's wedding and there's a meal at it, Am I supposed to walk in here and go sit down and eat some of this food, or am I supposed to abstain from it because it's, it's part of this idol temple and we're eating it in this place? How do we think about it? So, so the Corinthians looked at this and were going, hey, I can save money. This is part of life. If I go and participate in this wedding, I get to be around unbelievers. I get to be around these pagans who view this meat as something that has been provided to them by this false idol. I mean, this just makes sense for us to eat this, right? Like, this is just totally normal. And Paul says, no. No, the problem is, is what you're looking to do is satisfy your own desires. So by eating this meal, it would have appeared that they would have been wise and prudent. But here's the thing. The Corinthians were bringing this up as a topic of discussion. Help us think about this, Paul. Which means that just this topic alone was causing a problem. It was causing division in the church. Have you ever been around that guy? You know, the one that knows everything? I, I know that guy. I, I hope none of you are thinking that I'm that guy. I'm, if you are, I'm, I'm sorry. Don't try to be. No, we all know that guy. The guy who knows the best way to do things. And you don't even have to ask him. He'll tell you how to do it. And he's insistent on doing it his own way. He never learns. And usually, he doesn't play well with others. They often think that everyone is looking to them for leadership or direction. And here's what the biggest problem with that guy or girl is. They're often right. And it's just really frustrating. How do you feel about the guy that knows everything? How do you, how do you respond to that guy? I want to punch him in the throat, personally. I, just leave me alone. Don't tell me what to do. I, I can do it my way, right? Everybody that gets caught in the wake of the person who knows everything and how to do everything, they get destroyed. And what Paul is saying here is, it doesn't matter what you know. Because you think you know something, right? If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not know as he ought to know. You think you know something. But what matters is, 
is you using your knowledge in a way that builds up. That doesn't build you up, but that builds the church up. One, it's using your, lo- your knowledge in a way that loves others. What God desires of his people is a knowledge that builds people up, not a love that destroys. A love that unites, not one that divides. A knowledge that saves, not one that destroys. One commentator said, The truly well-rounded Christian has the ability to understand biblical truths and the ability to relate them to people, to himself, and to others. He has knowledge plus love because love is the medium through which truth is to be communicated. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Knowledge by itself brings arrogance, not maturity. But here's the thing. Paul is not separating knowledge from love. Look at verse 3. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. The church's love for God is based off their knowledge of him. I love my wife because I know my wife. I love God because I know God. And you can only know God because God has loved you first. So kind of as a side note, an answer to the question, how do I know if I'm actually saved? Is to ask the question, do you love God? And I don't mean like I have a warm affection and a nice admiration for him, or a, Jesus is my boyfriend, we can be friends and talk about how cool he is. That's not what love of God is. Love of God is a self-giving submission to the king. It's one acknowledging him as Lord over your life. It's submitting to him and trusting him for the work that he's done in Christ on our, on our behalf. If this love of God is in you, If you love God, what do you want to do? You want to get to know him. It's it's easy as a male to look back on the days when I dated my wife because I wanted to know her, because I loved who she was. We got married, and I don't do that as good as I should. But when you love someone, you pursue them. You chase after them. So, So I have to ask you the question, do you love God? And how do you answer that question? Well, what does your life say? Is your life marked by evidence of you pursuing him? And I don't mean, hey, I'm here at church on Sundays. That's a good thing. You should be. It's a great thing. And it's not marked by a legalism of I read my Bible every day and I, I give. That, it's not what I'm, that's not what the scriptures are calling us to. What it's calling us to is a pursuit of a relationship with a person. Do you pursue him? Do you chase after him? Do you love him? Because if you love him, then you'll seek to know him. It's, it's circular reasoning in a way. On one hand, we can look at the Corinthians and we can say, they had knowledge. They knew God and they knew theology. But the problem was, is they had turned their eyes away from him. And they had turned it back towards this knowledge that they had gained. But here's the question. What did the Corinthians know? What was this knowledge that was puffing them up and not building up the church? Okay, well, that brings us to point number two. This is what they know. Verse four, read with me. Therefore, okay, back on track. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, 
we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Now, a couple things going on there. Again, Paul is quoting their letter back to them. An idol has no real existence. The Corinthians are rightly acknowledging those little figurines that are in those pagan temples, they're just made, they're empty relics. They're made by somebody's hands. They're wood, they're metal, they're stone. They have no power, right? There's, there, is, there is no, an idol has no real existence. Sure, it's just a little figurine, but other than that, it's, that's it. It has no power. And then there is no God but one. Now, this would have called back to the Shema, which is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. All right, this is going to be important here in just a minute. This would have been something that the Jews said twice a day. This is foundational to Judaism and to their faith. So, so the Corinthians are bringing up these two truths, okay? We know that this idol has no existence, and we know that there is no God but one. They're holding both of those things up to, to Paul. And Paul's quoting it back to him. And then in verse 5, he says, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Now, if we stop and we look at that verse for just a second, at face value, it's kind of like, now, which is it, Paul? There's so-called gods, or indeed there are many gods and many lords. Which one is it? What Paul is doing in verse 5 is he's setting up his argument. He's setting up verse 6. Yet for us, for us, there is one God. Who's the for us in this? The for us in this is those in verse 3. It's those who are known by God, those who love God, those who claim him as Lord. For us, there is one God. Now, in pagan idolatry, how many gods were there? There were many gods. They had the gods of war, and they had the gods of rain, and they had the gods of wind, and the gods of fill in the blank, they had a God for it. And if there wasn't one, then we'd just find one, right? We'll just add one to the pantheon. Paul's saying, no, for us, there is one God. And how did, the, how did the pagans in Corinth relate to those idols? Well, they were in fear of them. I have to make a sacrifice to satisfy this idol so that I can get my next meal. But how do we relate to God? There is one God, the Father. He's the Father. He's not a God who is far off. He is a God who is near, especially to the brokenhearted. He is a God who is loving, who is steadfast, who is faithful, who is kind, who is merciful, who is gracious. This is the one God. He's the Father. From whom are all things. He is the cause of creation. All of creation exists from him as opposed to the pagan mini-gods, right? So I was a god of war, and I'd make a sacrifice to the god of war so we'd win the battle, but the problem was is it rained. So now I've got to make a sacrifice to the god of the weather, and then I've got to make a sacrifice to the god of harvest so I can have something to eat. You see how the, they were all dependent upon each other to work together, except for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things. He exists because all things are from him, that means he exists before creation. He exists over creation. And for whom we exist. What's the purpose of creation? It's for him. All of creation exists to glorify him. A few months ago, I had a, a guy that works for me. He, he asked me, we were riding down the road. He said, hey, I got a question for you. I was like, okay, fire away, buddy. He goes, where did God come from? Hey, that's, that's a solid question. Where did God come from? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we can see that 
all creation comes from him, so that must mean he's before creation. He's outside of creation. So we know that he exists before all times, and we can look elsewhere in the scriptures. We can look at Genesis, in the beginning God. We can look in John. We look at lots of places. We can see that there was never a time when he was not. So, so God has always existed. But the question I wish I would have asked him, and the question that I want to ask you, is this. Why do you exist? What's your purpose in life? Why are you here? Are you here to satisfy your own wants and desires? Are you here to live your best life now? You only got one life, right? YOLO. You only live once. That's dead, I think. I don't think that exists anymore. I think everybody's seen the, the folly of that. What's your purpose of being here? What's your purpose of living? Friends, you were not only created by God, but you were created for God. The reason that you exist is to glorify Him. And that doesn't mean that He's some far-off being that you have to fall down and worship in fear. No, it means that He is a Father who draws near. He is one that you love and you pursue. Do you know Him? Do you live for Him? Does your life reflect that? Now, for us, there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 6 is actually one of the high points in the New Testament. It's called a Christophany. It's a, it's a hymn. It's one of the lines that directly ties Jesus to being God. Remember the Shema, right? Paul says this back up in verse 4. There, he throws their words back at him. There is no God but one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. What happens in the latter part of this verse and one Lord, Jesus Christ. You see what Paul's doing in that moment? In that, in that moment, he is directly tying Jesus to God. He's saying Jesus is God. There is no difference between the two. Jesus is God, and through whom are all things. So God is the cause of creation, but Jesus is the agent of creation. John tells us this in the, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Paul affirms this. And all things exist for him through whom we exist. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who is through Christ, is reconciled to us to himself. You see, Jesus is the agent of creation, but he's also the agent of new creation. And if you're in Christ, then you've been made new. Jesus is the one who creates, and he's the one who recreates. And in the midst of all of that, he sustains it. He's the one who sustains creation as it is today. He holds all things together. But as a new creation, those who are in Christ, those who claim him as Father, as Lord, he sustains you through sanctification. He walks you through the hard and the dark times. He walks with you in the midst of these gray areas in which you go, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. He stands beside you. He sustains you. Now, this passage obviously magnifies Jesus. It, it puts him up and it ties him to God, but there's something else that's really cool that's happening in this. Look back at verse 6. Yet for who? 
for us, for whom we exist, through whom we exist. Paul is stressing the unique covenantal relationship between all Christians and the God who created the universe. Now, this is in contrast to the delusions of the pagan world. Paul says, we know the truth of the one God and one Lord. We know that all creation comes from the Father and that he is the reason and goal of our existence. We know the Lord Jesus, the agent of all creation, and the one to whom our new existence is due as well. The very structure of this text implies both a relationship with and through the Son. We are a part of that creation. And our existence comes from the Father through the Son as well. But both this text and its context highlight a contrast between Christians and the non-Christian world. You see, for the pagans, there's many gods and many lords. But for us, there is one God and one Lord. And all of this is part of God's creation. But we, us, for us who are known by God and who love God, we represent restoration and renewal and the destiny of God's creation, his new creation, which is accomplished through Christ. You see, God has saved us to live in a way that he created us to live. Now we don't have to run back to those idols. So, so we have this idea in verses 1 through 3 that knowledge, although it's a good thing, can be a bad thing because it will build us up. We can use it to build up our own pride and satisfy our own wants and desires and our own needs. This knowledge we have, but we got to be careful with it. we got to be careful that we use it to love. And this knowledge, the truth of this knowledge is that there is one God and one Lord, Jesus Christ. But, but what do we do with it? How do we apply, take this knowledge that we have and how do we apply it? Well, Part number three, how do we apply this knowledge? Paul helps us with this in these latter verses. Okay, verse seven. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Now, what's, what's going on here? What, what is the heart of the issue? This is what's happening. There's a group of Corinthians who have been saved out of this pagan world. And they have said, you know what? I believe that that pantheon of gods is just hollow, empty relics. I don't believe in them. I don't believe they're God. I do believe that Jesus is God. And they believe that. But the problem is, is they just started believing that. And then they look over and they see that guy who professes to be a Christian and has been for a long time, and there he is. He's just eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And, and he's in there at that west wedding festivity, and he's eating some of that food that's just been sacrificed to those idols. And now all of a sudden, this new Christian is looking at them going, oh, well, maybe there really is no difference between Christ and these many other gods. Maybe, maybe this is what I do have to do, or maybe I just need to add him to my pantheon. Of, of different gods to worship and different gods to fall down to and, and, and to obey and, and to fear. So, so they see these other Christians doing this, and these other Christians are going, man, you just got bad theology. You, you just don't understand the freedom that God has given you. You can enjoy this food now that God has given you because he died to pay the punishment that you, you deserve. God set you free from having to fall down to these false idols. No, he's the one sustainer and the one provider. 
you don't need all that other stuff. You just need him. That's what the older, more mature believers are saying. And Paul says, look, older believers, older Christ followers, older Christians, I know you know that to be true, but not everyone knows that. And because not everyone knows that, that should temper how you act. Verse 8, food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do eat it and no better off if we do. He's saying, look, guys, that food sacrificed on that idol, yeah, you're right, you're right. If you eat it, it's not going to make you worse off in God's eyes. But it's not going to make you any better in God's eyes, right? It, it's, it's neutral. It has no value in gaining or losing righteousness. It has nothing to do with that. But, verse 9, Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. The language that Paul uses here is, uh, I, think, I think it's fascinating. It's, it's cool. It's amazing. It's awesome to see how Scripture works. That word, um, where'd it go? Um, that word in verse, encouraged, in verse 10, will he not be encouraged? It's the same Greek word as the word built up, back up in verse 2, verse 1. Paul says, this brother is going to be built up. He's going to be encouraged. He's going to be in challenge. He's going to be challenged by you to follow in the same way that you're living. He's going to want to do what you do. And he's going to see that eating that food is just the same as worshiping a false idol. And so he's going to fall into the temptation of worshiping a false idol and return to his old ways. But when you do that, what happens? You've just destroyed him. There's this idea of building up versus crushing and by you satisfying your own freedoms that God has granted you, that Jesus died for you to have, what you've done is you've just destroyed your brother. And here's the thing. You know what happens when you sin against your brother? You're not just sinning against your brother. You're sinning against Christ. Now that alone should cause the Corinthians to stop. Because to the Christ follower, to sin against the one who died for us, who set us free from all of this, should be repulsive. Now, I think it's important to note here that this idea of a stumbling block, this idea of a stumbling block is different than offending someone. It's not just offending someone. What, what's happening here is they're actually seeing it and they're wanting to fall back into their old ways. They're wanting to do what they used to do. And when you do that, you've sinned. So what does Paul say? What does Paul say with this? He says, you know what? Because of this, I will never, verse 13, therefore, if food makes my brother to stumble, I will never, and the Greek is emphatic, it actually should say never, ever eat meat. At least I make my brother stumble. Paul says, you know what? I don't even want to risk it. I'm just going to abstain from meat. Now, in here, that would, be, that would be offensive. Can you imagine abstaining from meat? I know there's a lot of guys in your cattle that are going, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, what Paul is saying here is, guys, look, 
I'll sacrifice my rights because I don't even want to risk someone else stumbling, someone else falling back into their old ways. Church, we can look at the Corinthians, and on one hand, we applaud them. Because you know what they had done? They had uncovered their formal idols for what they were. They saw those little relics as lifeless, beingless, substanceless frauds. And they realized that they couldn't find their ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction in the consumption of this food. They realized that they didn't have to satisfy that idol to even have their next meal. But what they could do is they could eat that meat. And they could enjoy it as given to them by God, the one who creates and sustains all things. The Corinthians had the right to eat that food. However, as one commentary said, the problem with their good theology was that it was not working in their hearts. The Corinthians unfortunately ended up becoming puffed up with their knowledge rather than understanding that the aim of their rights were supposed to bend towards love. The Corinthians had believed the gospel. They had believed in Jesus. And it had transformed their thinking and their understanding of the things in this pagan world. But the problem was it didn't transform their lives. The very rights that Christ died for them to have, they were using for their own personal satisfaction at the hindrance to others. So what about us? What does that mean for us? Because like I said, pretty sure that we're not worried about that meat that we just bought in United or wherever you get your meat from, from ribbon wire lens out today. Uh, I don't think we're concerned that that's been sacrificed to some idol. Well, like I said at the beginning, I think this passage does have a little bit of sneaky application for us today. For the majority of the world, idol worship still exists. This passage is very relevant in almost every other country in the world. So if you get the privilege to go to that country, should you eat food sacrificed to idols? How do you handle it? Well, you act in a way that's loving and one that builds up. Second, As I tried to open with, there are a lot of gray areas in Scripture that don't give clear commandments. We know that it is clear on some things. The Bible says don't ever be drunk with alcohol. It says don't commit adultery. Don't have sex outside of marriage. Some of these things are plain. They're clear. But what about those things that are not? Well, I think there's a lot of things that I read this week that are helpful. When it comes to your personal rights and the things that God has given you. If you start getting getting nervous about having to sacrifice that thing, I think that's evidence that you're actually enslaved by your freedom, that it is Lord over you. So pay attention and be aware of those freedoms. And if you're afraid to let go of it, you need to ask the question, who's Lord? Is it your freedom, or is it you? A true knowledge of the gospel recognizes a couple things. First, it it recognizes that the privileges that we have are shared privileges. God did not save us as a solitary individual. He didn't just save you alone where you sit now. He saved you into a community into a group of people. 
He didn't die just for you. He died for his bride, which is the church. So that means that these rights and these freedoms that we have, they're never exercised in isolation. They always have a bearing on those around us. We must never miss the sociological implications of the cross. It is not a question of what one can or cannot do. It's a question of how to serve others and live a life that makes the gospel compelling. So how do we walk into these gray areas? How do I handle the idea of, I mean, the ones that come to my mind are alcohol or or cohabitation. Well, does your life make the gospel compelling by how you respond to that situation? Secondly, you need to recognize that a lack of care for Christ's bride for your brother or sister, is a lack of care for Christ. When you sin against your brother, what you're actually doing is you're sinning against God. So that should cause you to pause and to think about these areas of freedom. How often do we need to be at church? Can I have this drink? Is it okay to go and do these other things on a Sunday morning? Well, is your response build the church? Or does your response serve yourself. John MacArthur had seven ways in which I thought were helpful. I'm going to put these on the screen. And they're all E's, which means that's one way you know I didn't come up with this alliteration. Um, And there's questions. And if you want these questions, I'll give them to you later. But here's here's some ways to help you think through how, how do I handle a gray area in which Scripture is not explicit, okay? First is excess. Is the activity or habit necessary? Or is it merely an extra that is really not that important? Is it perhaps only an encumbrance that we should willingly give up? Second is expediency. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. Is what I want to do helpful and useful, or is it only desirable? Third, emulation. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. If we are doing what Christ would do, our action is not only permissible, but good and right. So that emulation is the idea of imitating. Are, would this be something that Christ would do? Is this something that my younger brother in Christ would want to follow and be like me in doing this? Okay, which follows right into example. Are we setting the right example for others, especially our weaker brothers and sisters? If we emulate Christ... Others will be able to emulate us. Next is evangelism. Is my testimony by participating in this gray area going to be helped or hindered? Will unbelievers be drawn to Christ or turn away from him because of what I'm doing? Will it help me conduct myself with wisdom towards outsiders making the most of every opportunity? Next is edification. Will I be built up and matured in Christ? If I do this thing, will I become spiritually stronger? All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Finally, exaltation. Will God be lifted up and glorified in what I do? If I do this thing, will God be glorified? God's glory and exaltation should be the supreme purpose behind everything we do, right? 1 Corinthians 8, 6. For from whom are all things and for whom we exist. We exist to glorify him. Here in a few chapters, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, 
do all to the glory of God. Church, here's the thing. Jeremy preached a few sermons back in 1 Corinthians that all things are ours in Christ. Therefore, all things are meant to be used in service and worship to him. Only the gospel tells us that we are so free that we can give up our rights for the sake of another. Our identity, it's not bound up in self-expression or self-gratification. Our identity is bound up in the ultimate self-expression of a God who is characterized by a self-giving love. You see, what Jesus did on the cross was him giving up his rights so that you could be set free. Because the older, stronger brother gave up his right, the younger, weaker brother, you and me, could walk in freedom. The most entitled person and all of creation gave up his rights for us. Church, the gospel transforms how we exercise our personal freedoms. You don't have to bow down to an idol, sacrifice to it to get your next meal. You don't have to be worried about satisfying him because Jesus died to set you free from that. Do you know him? Do you know him as a father do you know him as God? Esme, past few months, has professed Jesus to be Lord. And we're super excited about that. And yesterday, Jordan was in, my wife, Jordan was in her bathroom. I think she was painting her fingernails. And Emma walked into the room, and Emma said, Mom, I want to ask Jesus into my heart so I don't have to go to hell. And the reason she did was because Esme, Esme had talked to her about it. And Esme had told her about being baptized. And Jordan walked Emma through the gospel, and we began to ask Emma some questions. She said, well, when Dad gets home, I was gone. She said, when Dad gets home, why don't you talk to him? And so I said to Emma, I said, hey, Emma, I said, Mom said you wanted to talk about some things. This is really exciting. What, what do you want to talk about? And she goes, well, I want to get baptized. I said, well, why do you want to get baptized, babe? Well, because I don't want to go to hell. She said, well, I'm really glad that you want to get baptized, but I've got some good news for you. Getting baptized doesn't mean that, that you're not going to go to hell. That's just a tub of well water. There's nothing special about that that saves you. I said, but there is one person who saves you. I said, Emma, did you know this? Did you know that you were actually created to know him and to live with him? I said, Emma, I know I'm your dad, but I'm not a father like he's your father. I was given to you to show you what that's like, but I'm not good like he's good. I'm not patient like he's patient. I'm really thankful for KidZone. I said, Emma... I said, you know what? I said, God's holy. And here's our problem. We're not. I said, do you know what holy means? She goes, yeah. God is holy, which means he's perfectly good. That is a truth that we just taught her in Kids Zone. Kids Zone if, you don't have, if your kids aren't in Kids Zone, put your kids in Kids Zone. Kids Zone enabled me to be able to teach my daughter what holiness is. That's a total side note, totally sidetracking for a minute. I said, Emma, God's perfectly good. I said, are you perfectly good? No, Dad, I'm not. I said, you're not guess what? There was one who was perfectly good for you. He died for you. He died so you could be free and you could know him as a father. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus as your father? If you don't, you don't have to wait. <laughs> we went to bed that night. Dad, when can I ask Jesus into my heart? Do I have to wait again? Do I have to wait another day? No, baby. I don't even have to be there. 
And there's no special words you have to say. You just have to say, God, save me. God, save me and be my dad. Be my father. I will go wherever you go, and I will do whatever you ask me to do. That's the essence of salvation, is to know him as father. Do you know him as a father? If you do, if you do know Jesus as a father, are you willing to let go of those freedoms in order to build up the church? Because that's Paul's primary mission in 1 Corinthians 8. It has nothing to do with food sacrifice to an idol. It has everything to do with a love that builds one another up, that makes the church grow. Does your life represent and reflect a love for God that builds the church? Some of us want to fall into legalism. Some of us want to fall into license and say we're free to do whatever we want. Paul says there's a middle way. There's a middle way in which you grow and I grow, and the church benefits. Church, I think the right response for some of us is going to be one, well, for all of us, is to acknowledge that we failed and that we've fallen into one of these two categories, and we need to repent, and we need to confess, and we need to turn and change, and we need to walk in a way that loves and builds one another up because Christ died for you. And he died for me. He died for you and you and you and you. Because of that, we live to serve. And our freedoms that we have are meant to serve. Church, having a right understanding of the gospel will transform how we live. If you guys would join me in prayer. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being kind enough, for being gracious and merciful enough to let go of your freedoms, to humble yourself, and to take on the form of a man, and to become obedient to the point of death, even the most despicable of deaths, a death on a cross. Thank you for being perfectly good when I am entirely incapable of it. And God, thank you that when I ask, you will give me that goodness. And you will make me into a new creation. God, I pray that we at Liberty, God, at this church, or that we would grow in our love for one another. God, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you will help us be willing to sacrifice these freedoms that you've given us and that you've set us into for the good of each other. God, and I pray that in our love for one another, that you would grow us. God, that you would grow us in our knowledge of you, and God, I pray that you'd grow us in size. God, that you would redeem people for the glory of your name. Help us to live in a way that honors you, that glorifies you, and serves one another. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and let's sing together?